podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, we're here for another week. I will be shortly going through a few emails on a range of subjects. Um, and I, in very shortly, I will be doing another countdown. Uh, we had a good reaction to the uh, the top seven, uh, seven to one of Ronnie O'Sullivan's world title. So I'm going to be doing the same with Stephen Hendry's. Before that, though, we've had the uh, draw made for the Mixed Doubles, uh, the World Mixed Doubles at Milton Keynes, the brand new event, and it was made at Ascot, uh, Ascot a Racecourse uh, during the ITV racing coverage. And we have uh, Neil Robertson playing with Mink Nutcherat. We have Ronnie O'Sullivan partnering Rian Evans, Mark Selby partnering Rebecca Kenner, and it's Judd Trump and Nogon Yi completing the lineup, but it's going to be played in a group format so they all play each other and then the top two will contest a final. Uh, Ronnie and Rianne I think is a, is a good pairing isn't it because they know each other really well, they played exhibitions together, they get on well um, so I make those favourites right away just because I mean obviously Ronnie's a great player, Rianne's a, a terrific uh, player on the female circuit but I just think that they will gel well together because there's an existing friendship there um, some of the other pairs are going to have to sort of find a way of playing together and approaching it, whereas Ronnie and Rianne, as I say, they, they know each other well. So, but we'll see. It's it's um, quite a short format, and it's it's a sort of a step into the unknown. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. And of course, it's been a big week in the UK for women's sport because the Lionesses, the uh, England women's football team, won the European Championship um, at Wembley last weekend. Incredible uh, occasion. It was an absolute sellout, nearly ninety thousand, and the viewing figures were incredible. And the BBC. They had over 17 million plus online on the iPlayer, 6 million. So effectively 23 million people tuned in to watch that final. Um, if you'd have said 10 years ago that that would happen, you know, well, I'm sure people would have mocked it as, as they do many things involving women's sport. But the fact is they were successful. And I think the BBC deserve a lot of credit, actually. Um, there was a sports personality of the year about a decade ago where... The shortlist was all male, and there was a bit of a backlash because it was felt that women's sport had not been given a fair shake. And that definitely marked a sea change in media coverage, particularly from the BBC. Their website foregrounded women's sport much more. They made an effort to broadcast much more. That filtered down throughout the entire industry, Sky Sports and other other broadcasters, ITV, Channel 4, etc., started to get behind women's sport. And... As a result, the public started to get behind it. You know, it is the old field of dreams thing. If you build it, they will come. And people did come, and it took time. But gradually, we got to a position where actually these events were seen as proper national sporting events in their own right. And, well, it's culminated in that incredible uh, final last week and the just the sort of joy around it and the euphoria around it. Um, so it's marked a bit of a sea change, I think, in people's attitudes. And hopefully, in, in a, maybe in a smaller way at first, the snooker, the mixed doubles can do the same. And my feeling is that there's a potential for it to be a bit like, go back to Ding winning the China Open in 2005. That didn't an, an immediately mean that there were 20 world-beating Chinese players on tour. It took a decade, 15 years to get to that position where we now have 27 Chinese players and we know how good so many of them are and they're winning tournaments. It may be in 10, 15 years' time we have a female player on tour who can win tournaments. The four at the moment are struggling a little bit and they don't. it doesn't seem likely that they'll win ranking events, but it's who they inspire. 
it's where we get to in the future. So that's why events like this are very important. It's a chance to see women playing on television in a, in a proper tournament. Um, so, but as I say, I think the BBC deserve credit, and they've had a great run. It's got to be said of uh, three great sporting events that they've, I think they've done really well: Wimbledon, which they always do well, uh, the women's football, European Championship, and now the Commonwealth Games. Their coverage. I mean, I actually live very close to where their studio is, and I have. Uh, you may, it's a bit like Where's Wally? You may have spotted him in the background a few times. Uh, but they've done a brilliant job uh, of that, and uh, I sense a slight return as well to a sort of more journalistic approach. People like Andrew Cotter are very uh, prominent now as part of the team to the commentary. So yeah, it's um, it's a reminder of how important the BBC is in terms of national events and national profile. And uh, actually, I do feel this event. I mean, it's on ITV, and I'll be working on it, so I'm very happy about that. But I do feel this event actually. I don't know whether it was ever offered to the BBC, but it seemed that actually it would it would have suited them down to the ground, this mixed doubles. But anyway, it's going to be on ITV in the UK. I'm aware that a lot of people outside the UK are now screaming at their audio devices saying, well, hang on, that's, that's great for you. How do we watch it? Well, I don't know exactly where else it will be on. I'm sure Matchroom Live will have coverage, um, but that will, I'm sure, all be uh, announced in due course. I hope people around the world can watch it. Obviously, Hong Kong and Thailand, where they have players involved in it, Australia in terms of Neil Robertson so hopefully we'll we'll get that list shortly but the main thing is I think there is excitement about the event and uh, now we've got the draw they can start uh, you know, discussing tactics amongst themselves now a couple of weeks ago I gave my countdown for what it's worth of Ronnie O'Sullivan's world titles and, I, and I'm going to do it for Stephen Hendry but I'm going to repeat what I said um, then which is that they're all impressive to win the world championship is impressive. I suppose a multi-champion, we have the luxury of ranking them, but they're all important and impressive, okay? So it's not doing any of them down, but I've come up with, it's all a bit of fun, I've come up with a list. So we're going to start on number seven, we go seven to one. So number seven, and I'm actually going to lump the first two in together. Seven, I've got 1995, and six, I've got 1996. I think the reason I put these two at the bottom, 95, he beat Nigel Bond in the final, 96, he beat Peter Ebden. I think the reason... I put these at the bottom is because at that point Hendry was so imperious he was just expected to win it didn't feel like an event in winning he said himself that around that time he would say to his then wife you know I'll bring that jacket to the to the party after the final you know they just expected him to win and people weren't getting that close to him it was an interesting time because in the mid 90s the likes of Steve Davis he was just starting to drop away Jimmy White was maybe past his best by then uh, John Parrott maybe just starting to tail off a little bit. They'd been sort of major threats four or five years earlier. And the new players coming through, the likes of Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Mark Williams, they were just becoming established. But they were still very young and they weren't quite, well, they weren't at the level that they would, they would get to just a few years later. So the main sort of challenges to Hendry was people like Peter Ebden, uh, Ken Doherty, who of course would beat him in, in the 97 final. Uh, you know, James Watanar, Gary Wilkinson, Darren Morgan, those sort of people. But Hendry was clearly, you know, a couple of rungs of the ladder above those guys. So those couple of world titles, I remember very little about those those tournaments, actually. Um, I, they, 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 don't, they don't seem that memorable to me. Um, Stephen Hendry was just expected to win them, and he did. <laughs> but uh, anyway, number five... 1994. Now, this, of course, was um, this went to a decider with Jimmy White. People might say, hang on, this is a classic final. What's it doing so far down the list? The truth is, really, 
he shouldn't have won that tournament. He broke his arm <laughs> early on, or broke a bone in his elbow, which is a slightly different description way to describe it than broke his arm. But the fact is, he had an injury. His arm was in a sling most of the, most of the tournament when he wasn't playing. Um, and of course, you know, more, more importantly than that, Jimmy White had the balls to beat him in the decider, and he, he missed, as we know, he missed a black and uh, Stephen Henry cleared up, uh, steely clearance, and all credit to him. My feeling on 94, I think, think it was a great championship, it was a great final, but really, you know, Stephen Hendry, I think, would feel, if he was being honest, that that's one that maybe he shouldn't have won, but he did win it, and all credit to him. Um, I just feel the final was probably, in a way, bigger than the achievement, if you know what I mean. Uh, so number four, I've gone for 1990, now this was his first victory obviously in the championship he became the youngest champion it was a major moment here's the thing though I, I remember actually like, quite clearly I was young at the time but I remember quite clearly he was just expected to win it now there's been other people sort of expected to win it who haven't but there was there was no sense that he wouldn't win it he'd already won big titles before that he'd won the Grand Prix and you know the British Open the Masters he'd already won the UK Championship in fact coming in to the 1990 um, World uh, championship. He'd won the UK and the Masters that season. Um, he, he would have completed the Triple Crown at the Crucible had such a thing invent- been invented then. <laughs> he says, not letting it go. But the point is, he was already really the number one then, really. And so it was it was a matter of, well, if he doesn't win it this year, win it next year. There was no sense, and I think most importantly, actually, from him himself, there was no sense that Stephen Envy wouldn't win the World Championship. Because he he was just so good and and you know was only only going to get better and he did get better. Um, it was a great final with Jimmy White. It was a new sort of snooker. Those two were sort of as we came into the new decade were pioneering a sort of new approach, a more attacking, exciting approach. Here's a fact about that final: Henry won eighteen twelve, but but the average frame time was twelve minutes. Now that now would be considered fantastic. Back then it was unheard of. Um, so. In a way, I'd like 1990 to be higher up the list, but as I say, it was just a sense of inevitability that he was going to win it, and he did, because he kept on winning it. So we got three to go. Number three, I've got 1993. This was the year where he just basically blazed a trail through the field. The final was a washout. He beat Jimmy White 18-5. I know Hendry puts this uh, at the top of the list in terms of performances, because he was just so much better than everybody. Um, so uh, as a championship, it wasn't kind of a great spectacle because he was just beating everybody. Um, and, you know, the, the final, you always want to be exciting over two days, and it wasn't. It finished a session early. But it was a tremendous individual performance, so that's why it's so high up the list. So we've got two to go. Number two, I've got 1992. This was another classic championship, classic final. He was 14-8 down to Jimmy White. He played at a do, or die, a do or Die Brown at the end of the afternoon session to stay in the match. And then in the evening he came back and, of course, eventually in, in total won 10 frames in a row. Um, I spoke when I was on with Phil Yates doing snooker player bingo a couple of weeks ago about the importance of that 1992 event to me. It was very um, formative in my sort of snooker education because I watched, I probably watched more of that World Championship than any any previously because I think it was the school holidays I can't remember exactly why but I remember being absolutely engrossed in it and the final of course delivered in a big way and Stephen Hendry delivered in a big way and that was I think the, the absolute moment that he that he became okay 
really the new king of the game. Steve Davis was still challenging at that time. Obviously, Jimmy, John Parrott had been defending champion. But that was the moment Hendry started to go off into the distance. Um, a very significant moment in his career, of course, and in, and in snooker history. But number one, I, c- I think it can only be 1999, which is when he won his seventh world title. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. The first is, it was historic, it was seven, which is one more than Steve Davis and Ray Reardon in the modern era. I think uh, the second is the quality of the field he had to face. He Every round he had to beat essentially a title contender. He beat Paul Hunter, who had already at that point won a tournament, the Welsh Open. He beat James Watanar, who maybe had tailed off a bit from his absolute peak, but was still, I mean, it's only been two years since he'd been a semi-finalist there. Matthew Stevens, who at that point seemed like a, a world champion in waiting. In the semis, Ronnie O'Sullivan, that was the snooker from the gods session, uh, the third session, as, as Clive dubbed it. Fantastic match. And obviously O'Sullivan was an absolute contender for the title. And then Mark Williams in the final. And it was the year later that Williams won the title. So every round, you know, I think a criticism you can't, well not a criticism, but an observation you can lay at, at sort of the, the Stephen Hendry years at the Crucible is that some of those early rounds going back, he did get some some easy matches, shall we say, early on, first couple of rounds. But you couldn't say that about 99. You know, he had to play well in every match, and he did. And I guess the third thing was just that, at that point, in general, the position in, on the circuit in the professional game, he was coming under major threat um, from the new wave of players, O'Sullivan, Higgins, Williams. But not just them, people like Stephen Lee had come along, Marco Fu had come along... This is the thing about Hendry that people forget. He played in the open era. The game went open in 1991. So the ultra closed shop had gone and suddenly there were potentially hundreds of players who could challenge him. So he was number one in the game essentially for a decade at a time when there were six, seven hundred professionals for a lot of that time. Um, a more authentic number one you couldn't find really. Um, and 99 capped it all off. I was there and I remember afterwards, um, John Carroll, who was Hendry's road manager, because Hendry always had to do media interviews. He was going around the press room, doing radio interviews and so on. And John Carroll gave me his cue to hold. He said, just hold that while he's doing this. And I'm, I was like rooted to the spot. I thought, I, I can't, what if, if, I'm, if I make a sudden movement, <laughs> the cue might break, you know? Of course, it did break eventually at Heathrow in rather less glamorous surroundings. The baggage handlers sort of just threw it around. But uh, anyway... Um, it was a historic moment. I think there was definitely an expectation then that there would be an eighth. It didn't happen. But that's our countdown. So I'll I'll, I'll go through them again. Seven to one. So number seven, 95. Six, 96. Five, 94. Four, 1990. Three, 92. And one is 1999. Now, obviously, you are free to disagree. And if you do, let me know. And uh, what should the order be? You can email us, snookerscenepodcast.mail.com. That's Podcast at mail.com. I'm going to rattle through some of these emails as quickly as I can. So John and Jackie write, Love the show. My 10-year-old visually impaired son and I were at the World Championship this year and we had a great time. We're thinking of going to Germany next year and we're wondering if the earpieces would have English commentary. Well, thanks, John. Um, first, I'm delighted that you, had, uh, you and your son had a good time at the Crucible. And, of course, the earpieces are a help to uh, people who are visually impaired. As far as I know, as far as I know, they do not have English commentary. Um, 
I'm not absolutely sure they have earpieces, actually, thinking about it, but I, I'm pretty sure if they did, it would be the commentary of Rolf Kalb from German Eurosport. Um, so I will, I will, I'll actually, I should have obviously done this before the podcast, but I will email, email Rolf and ask him if that's the case, and I'll get back to you. But uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, I'm afraid they don't have the English commentary, which I suppose really is right, because, you know, it's not in England. <laughs> it is in Germany, I suppose the commentary should be German. Um, but I, I will double check that. Now then we have James Watt. Uh, this is, this is about snooker player bingo. He said, following an off the cuff remark on the podcast last week, I just wanted to help put your mind at rest with regards to what Joe Swale is up to these days. So, so Joe, I was on with Phil Yates. Joe was one of the subjects, uh, of the, uh, of the snooker player bingo. James says, it's a running joke now that, that I see Joe as much as my own family, and I regularly spot him out and about around in Belfast, no matter where I go at all times of the day. While I can't speak for him at the exact moment, he was in good spirits the last time we saw him on a night out in town. I tried to say hello, not as often as I can, and was able to have a chat with him one evening about what he's up to these days. Happy to report he's an absolute gent. Also, I believe I remember him saying at the time that he was either coaching or looking to get into coaching, but I had taken too much ale by this point to absolutely confirm. Anyway, I hope this has helped. I think I speak for all when I say it's good to have you back for the current 1.1 podcast per week. Well, thank you, James. Yes, we're back to one. Uh, but uh, our, summer, our summer sort of uh, hysteria of two a week has, has, has gone. But I'm glad to hear Joe's doing well. I, I kind of suspected he would be because he just seems <laughs> he just seems that sort of character to enjoy himself and I'm glad, to, I'm glad that he is. Kelly Barker. Now, of course, Kelly, uh, a big snooker fan. She was on our fan special uh, about a month ago now. And uh, she writes, I was interested to hear the question from a listener regarding the Championship League being played behind closed doors. I kind of understand this, as it's the way it's always been, even before COVID. What I don't really understand, though, is that all the regular qualifying rounds of ranking events, apart from the Worlds, are now played behind closed doors. I enjoyed watching the European Masters qualifiers at home, but apart from players' guests... It seems such a shame that normal fans aren't allowed in to watch. It probably wouldn't be overcrowded and the seating was there. So would it have been such a hassle to have a staff member on the door to charge us an entry fee and let us in? I can't help but feel that things are going backwards in our supposedly global sport. Well, I think the good news, Kelly, is that the next qualifier, correct me if I'm wrong, in Wigan, actually they are allowing uh, the fans in. I saw a post um, saying that people could, could go and watch, I think. Um... I'm not exactly sure what the issue was in Leicester, except to say that the venue, there's a lot of work going on um, outside because they're building, in effect, an extension. So the car park, as was, is no longer exists. And maybe they were just worried about lots of people turning up and there's literally nowhere for them to kind of park. I don't know. Um, but as far as, as, far as I'm aware, the next qualifier, there will be uh, crowds. I have to say, though... I'm not sure how much of a kind of spectacle it really is now because one of the great things about qualifiers going back is you would have eight tables, at least eight tables. So as a spectator, you get you would get the chance to see so many matches and if you were bored with the one you were watching, you should just shuffle down three tables, watch another one. You got to see lots of different players. Uh, actually, as a, I'm not sure all the players always enjoyed it, but as a spectator um, experience, it was actually really good, the qualifying. When they used to have it at Preston Guildhall and you could sort of walk around on the, on the top there around looking at all, all the tables, it was great. Uh, now, they, they've sort of stretched it out, they're using two tables, so they're stretching it out for sort of six days to try and get money from the streaming. And, you know, is that really as as enjoyable? I don't know. I mean, the good news is, I think with the best of sevens, you get four sessions a day. So, if you're there all day, there's eight matches. But, um, 
I'm sure a lot of snooker fans would like to go, but uh, I, I preferred it when there was a lot more happening, um, just from a sort of purely spectator perspective. The last slide is a bit uh, is a bit grim, isn't it? <laughs> I can't help but feel things going backwards in our supposedly global sport. I think it's certainly true to say, speaking to players, there is a feeling backwards. I don't know. There's a feeling things have plateaued, definitely, uh, because I think they have. We must go back to 15 years ago when the circuit was struggling. We didn't have many tournaments. Barry Hearn came in. He immediately threw everything at the wall. We got loads of events on. And that was great for a long time. But so much of it was dependent on China. And now those events have gone. We don't know when they're coming back. They've not been directly replaced. So there is a hole, excuse me, there is a hole in the circuit, definitely. And you speak to players, a lot of them feel that the calendar is quite sparse. Um, I have to say a lot of these players were the same ones who complained about going to China. So, you know, you can't have it always. Um, but there is a sense that, yeah, there's, there's, there's not a great sort of spark about the game at the moment. It is so British-based, you say, about our supposedly global sport. So much of it is based in Britain. And really, I think what what's what's been exposed with the China tournaments going is that we were dependent really on two markets in in the main, Britain and China, and one of them for now has disappeared. So apart from a couple of events on in mainland Europe, we were back to being a largely British sport. And there's bad news coming because I'm pretty sure the six reds is not going to happen. Uh, a lot of players have said that to me when I was in at the Championship League. They, they, they understand it's not on. It's not been officially announced, but it looks like that will be off. So that's another event. I know it wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but Thailand is another market, another sort of, you know, place it in the world to visit with a good snooker um, tradition, heritage there in Bangkok. So, you know, there's a feeling that, uh, yeah, that things have plateaued, I guess. Um, now, that, that, now the, the curve can move again, and I hope it will. There's always talk of new tournaments. They're hard to get on. Someone's got to pay for them. Um, you know, it's not easy just to, throw together a world ranking event it, it would cost you know six figures comfortably um, but let's hope that things do move forward because at the moment yeah things are maybe not as good as they have been and, and it's not completely world snooker's fault obviously China they're they not in control of that but it does slightly expose the fact that some of the other parts of the globe have not been explored I have to say that from a player's perspective um, some of the ones that have been complaining the fact is there were two new ranking events introduced last year the British Open and players lined up before that event to have a go at the format including some players who did really well at the tournament and the other one was the Turkish Masters and <laughs> that was marked by a player getting really drunk at the official pre-tournament reception and ending up in hospital so the players have responsibility as well to behave and you know most of them do let's be clear about that but there are some who particularly online are very quick to go on there and start running things down, whereas actually what the game needs is a bit more positivity around it because that's the only way things are ever going to translate to the general public. If the players aren't positive about their sport, why should anyone else be? Um, but I do understand the concern at the moment because a lot of them are feeling you know there's not actually that much to play for, and of course there are certain events where the fields are restricted. Everyone could get in the World Grand Prix, but the fact is only 32 players will. Everyone can get in the Players' Championship, but only 16 will. Everyone can get in the Tour Championship, but only 8 will. Um, so we, we hope for good news, but uh, as I say, at the moment, it's a, a rather difficult sort of difficult situation when you've just lost this big block of events. And, and 
the, the, the worst thing is we just don't know when China, when we can go back to China. Steve Dunn, on a lighter note, he said, I'm loving the off-season bi-weekly, or should that be twice-weekly podcasts? Well, it's now once-weekly, <laughs> Steve. So I really enjoyed the ranking of Ronnie's titles. Just a suggestion for another fun list, top ten nicknames. Well, I will look at this, Steve, but I was thinking about this. What's changed with nicknames is nicknames used to exist essentially for exhibitions, so you could put them on the poster. And they would... The best nicknames have always been associated with a player's character and playing style. Hurricane Higgins. That couldn't, you could not find a more appropriate nickname. Whirlwind White. Rocket Ronnie. Tornado Tony Drago. But what's happened over the years is that it, 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 someone made a decision that everyone's got to have a nickname. So a lot of them now are just contrived. I mean, there was one, Rory McLeod, for a while, was known as the Highlander because it was a character from the film. But, I mean, I was saying about the outlaw, Joe jo, jo Swell, some of them you have to sort of, you need like a sort of York Notes explainer to tell people, you know, explain what, why they are called that. And, and then you're sort of contriving a nickname. So, like, Ryan Dynamite Day, that's just alliteration, really. I mean, it's, it's nothing wrong with a nickname, but... It's a bit striven for. Ricky Walden, for a long time, they tried to find one for him and they just kind of gave up. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look at that uh, for a future for a future episode, for sure. Now, Nathan Manley writes from Australia. Good day again, Dave. By the way, uh, the, this, this contains an extraordinary anecdote. Uh, <laughs> I just sort of flag that up. He said, thank you for bringing back the podcast again this season and for two episodes a week, no less. It's great news. Well, that ship has sailed, Nathan. He said, while listening to your final episode of last season, I was worried that you may have been going the same way as the TV show Neighbours, which has just aired its final ever episode here in Australia. Speaking of... And this is the anecdote here. Wait for this. Speaking of Neighbours, and as this podcast is so niche in an awesome way, back in 1988, my grade five library teacher was none other than Jason Donovan's auntie. <laughs> she managed to get me and my friends a signed black and white publicity photo of Jason Donovan sporting his classic 80s mullet. Now, we'll get on with Nathan's email in a minute, but Neighbours, it, it has finished. I watched the final episode uh, recently. Um, it was a weird experience because I didn't know half the people in it, but obviously they did bring back Kylie and Jason and Guy Pierce as Mike and various other people. Um, and there was something very moving about the whole thing. Susan Fletcher, at the end, reads out this letter to Ramsey Street, which is really a letter to the viewers. Um, and I'm, I hadn't watched Neighbours for tw literally 25 years, but it used to be, when I was young, kind of part of the, you know, you come home from school, you'd watch Neighbours. It was part of the, you know, your life, really. Um, so I was sort of sad to see it ending, but but pleased to see they went out um, with with sort of a special celebration. It, didn't ju it wasn't just axed. They actually got the chance to, to say goodbye. But here's the thing. Kylie and Jason turn up with Especially For You playing in the car, which was a good touch. But it seemed to me, I, I, I suspect Kylie didn't have time to learn any dialogue because I'm pretty sure she says something like, we're home when, she, when they get there and then doesn't speak again in the whole episode. <laughs> so presumably, you know, time is money and she just didn't have time to, to learn the dialogue. Jason Donovan, still uh, a very handsome man, isn't he, Jason Donovan? I mean, uh, if you knew his auntie, that, that would be essentially, uh, I imagine, great, uh, great um, sort of kudos to have. Uh, with uh, with your friends, but um, yes. Anyway, uh, that's neighbours. We'll get on with Nathan's. Uh, we'll get on with Nathan's email. It says it's great to have the snooker season back. I'm looking forward to following all the ups and downs and the news throughout. By the way, I, just on on neighbours. Sorry, Nathan, I've, I've cut you off there. 
Uh, Stuart Bingham, I know for a fact, when they had the Australian Open, he went to Ramsey Street. Uh, it's not called that in real life, but he went there on the way back because he, he'd watch Neighbours and he uh, got a few pictures. Anyway, I'll, I'll continue in Nathan's uh, podcast. It's great to have the snooker season back. I'm looking forward to following all the ups and downs and the news throughout the season on your podcast, almost like a soap opera. I do, however, need some help from you and your many listeners. As mentioned in my first email to you last year, my local town doesn't have anywhere to play snooker on a full-size table. So I built a shed, now named The Crucible, and bought my own table. I'm just about to paint the walls and ceilings and would like some suggestions on which colours I should use. Should I use a white on the ceiling and a darker colour on the walls or vice versa? I have no idea. So come on, Dave and loyal snooker scene podcast listeners, hit me your suggestions. Keep up the great work as always. Thank you, Nathan. Um, a friend of mine years ago went on, went on a program called Changing Rooms, which is where they send round these overexcitable interior designers to essentially change your house in about two days. And he worked on the snooker, this guy who's a producer. Tony, his name is. Still, still doing it now. And, um, <laughs> but they don't sort of tell you what they're going to do. And, and they turned his bedroom into this sort of Japanese inspired uh, thing. And the walls were essentially black. It was the most depressing <laughs> looking thing I've ever seen. I mean, you know, because it's all very well for these people to come around and express themselves artistically. They don't have to live there. <laughs> they just do it and then they clear off. Tony had to live there. I'm pretty sure that they painted over it. Anyway, um, that's not really helping you. I, I think a light room is always good, personally. And, uh, what I would suggest, and, and we'll take suggestions from the listeners, but why don't you do a light colour, but, but put if you can source sort of photographs of, you know, snooker players, Neil Robertson maybe, and whoever, Ronnie, if you can get those, then put those on the wall and you'll be maybe inspired, you've already called it the Crucible, you'll be inspired to, you know, try and emulate them. Get one of, uh, get one of Mrs Mangle, <laughs> maybe. There was a painting of Mrs Mangle uh, in one of the houses in The Last Neighbours. Um, Anyway, I'm talking about neighbours a bit too much here. Let's go back to uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan's seventh world title. Rob O'Connor writes, As we're still somewhat in the silly season for snooker, a quick question to ponder on the podcast. It would be interesting to hear your opinion. I'm wondering whether winning a seventh world title does more for Ronnie's legacy than winning an eighth. On the surface, it sounds like nonsense. But part of me thinks that going from six to seven and matching Hendry... Uh, put the, putting the final nail in the coffin for the who's the best ever debate... Had he not gotten to the magic number, the detractors would have had something to hang their hat on for all time. Never getting from six to seven would seem more of a letdown than never getting from seven to eight. Winning an eighth would obviously give him sole ownership of the King of the Crucible moniker, but does it amount to much more in terms of how he'll be viewed in the future than a cementing of the legacy? For whatever reason, I can't imagine the same outpouring of emotion were he to get to eight, but maybe I'm wrong. I was looking back at 96 and 99 to see which one Henry looked more pleased about, but other than a smile and gentle fist pump, he doesn't give much away. Good to have you back on the airwaves. Thank you, Rob. I know what you mean here. I think, here's, I've been thinking about this. I think if he won an eighth next year, it definitely wouldn't seem as big because it was such a big emotional outpouring, a special moment in our sport. Um, it's hard to top that 12 months on. But let's say it takes him five or six years, then that's different because the, you know, the passage of time, the water under the bridge, all that's gone. And there would be more of a sort of build up to it. And also he'd be in his fifties. So it would seem an extraordinary thing. So I think if he takes a while to get to eight, when he gets to eight, it would be seen as a massive thing. If he does it next year, it would still be big, but maybe, like you say, not as big as the seven for all the reasons that you've, uh, that you very uh, intelligently laid out there. So, um, yeah, I, I, I can see what you're saying. Um, 
Jimmy White thinks he'll get to ten. That uh, that would be something. But uh, uh, as I say, I think I think if he if he wins an eighth next year, it's hard to. I mean, where do you go? Do you do you grab onto your to the runner up your opponent? You know, for for even longer than he did to Judd Trump. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, it, it, Ronnie's already said that he's not going to put as much into next year as this year, but he says a lot of things, doesn't he? Let's be honest. Um, be interesting uh, to see, you know, what he does end up with in his career, and then of course, who could possibly get past him? I mean, for a while people said, "Oh, Mark Selby will be the one who, who breaks Hendry's record," but you know, Selby's got to win another four to do that. It's it's not easy. It's not easy at all. We'll do two more because I've got to go out. Now you don't need to know that, but uh, <laughs> but but um, it's a fact, right? Uh, who have we got here? Tony Tony Grove, I think. So I love your podcast, but I have to take issue with a statement you made at the end of ranking Ronnie's seven world titles. Sure, Ronnie is now the most successful player of his career, so can rightly be judged the best. And we all know that his natural talent allows him to do ridiculous stuff on the table at any moment. But absolutely, now this is. He's used the initials, but it's roll on the floor laughing, which, by the way, no one's ever done. Only lunatics have ever rolled on the floor laughing. You know, I mean, let's, let's be clear about that. But anyway, so he's absolutely roll on the floor laughing at, in 2004, Hendry was still a top player. This is coming from a massive fan, but Hendry was completely shot by the early 2000s. The only reason Ronnie didn't batter him in 2002 was because he went crazy saying, I want to stick, a, I want to stick it right up him. <laughs> he wound Hendry up and still had the skills and his cue shortly before it got obliterated by baggage control to dispatch him. But by 2004, some of the shots he used to miss were comical. A good player by most, by most people's standards, sure, but not a top player. He never won a major again. I only think he won one ranking title, the Poxy Malta Open or Cup or some such baloney. We can use stats to twist anything, e.g. Hendry has a winning crucible head-to-head against all the class of 92, but it never tells the whole story. Hendry was world number one in 2005 without getting past the quarters of any events and because Ronnie couldn't be asked to travel for ranking points. You could try to argue for Trump over Ronnie due to his head-to-head finals record. We all know, though, that Trump wishes he was as good as Ronnie, but this year proved he never will be. Anyway, keep up the good work. I love a debate over snooker. Oh, got out of breath reading that. What this uh, email exposes, Tony, is a number of your prejudices. Um, and it reminded me of Michael Gove during the ghastly Brexit debate when he said, we've had enough of experts. In other words, what he was saying was, my opinions are more important than facts. So let me hit with you with a few facts here, OK? In 2004, Stephen Hendry was ranked number two in the world. That is a fact, OK? It might not suit your opinion, but it's a fact. He was ranked higher than O'Sullivan. He was ranked higher than John Higgins at that point. Mark Williams was the world number one. Another fact for you, six months before that world championship, he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan in the British Open final, in which there were five centuries. OK? He made three of them. That was a proper match in a proper tournament, and he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan in the final. A couple of months after that, he was runner-up in the UK Championship, which is one of the biggest tournaments in the game still. He lost 10-8 to Matthew Stevens, and the week after the World Championship, he won the Premier League, which was an event for all the top players. So it's a fact that he was a top player in 2004. Might not suit your opinion, but it was a fact. You say in 2002 that he only beat Ronnie because Ronnie had... Had that implosion at the press conference? Well, we'll never know, will we? We don't know. He might still have beaten him. He might not have done. Um, sorry, I lost your email there from the uh, from the laptop. Yeah, you say here uh, he only won the the, the Poxy Malta Open or Cup. Well, learn the name of the tournament. It was the Malta Cup, and it wasn't Poxy. There weren't many tournaments on the circuit, so it was actually quite a big tournament, and everyone played in it. Um, it was a it was a proper ranking event like any other, and Malta was a always a very, very popular venue with the players. 
Now, he did decline quite sharply after that. He got to the UK final in 2006. Um, he got back to number one in the world. Um, but he, his game definitely declined in the second half of the 2000s. But by 2000, in 2004, he was still a top player. He was the world number two. You might not like facts. I know in this era of, sort of Donald Trump and all that, people choose their own truths because the truth isn't convenient to them. But that is a fact. He was the world number two. He was the winner of the British Open that season. He was runner-up in the UK Championship. He was a semi-finalist at the Crucible. And he won the Premier League. Fact. Anyway, thanks for your email. We'll move on to Adam Fisher. Uh, since it's the low season, I'll ask a few boring questions. <laughs> what, a, what a way to start an email. He said, uh, what player has received the most lucrative shirt stroke waistcoat sponsor for the game has seen? Second part, do you know why Judd Trump was sponsored by Burger King for a while? For some reason, this high-profile fast food sponsor annoyed me. Its garish logo looked completely out of place. Third part, has there ever been any quirky or joke sponsors, i.e. has a player ever worn something for a laugh? Well, I'm going to go, take these backwards, actually. The, the last one, the most famous um, of these was Jimmy White, who changed his name to Jimmy Brown because he was sponsored by HP Source. This is not a joke, this happened. It was before the Masters one year, about 20 years ago now. And, yeah, HP Source sponsored him. So Jimmy changed... They said he changed his name by Depol. Did that happen? I, I'm not so sure. But he wanted to be known as Jimmy Brown. It was a very clever marketing, actually, because... Everyone knew him as Jimmy White, and suddenly, if you see Jimmy Brown on the graphic thing, what's going on there? And then you have to it has to be explained to you why he's changed his name, and then you know HP Source get to get all the publicity. Um, I remember Alan Hughes, the MC, introduced him and did not want to. World Snooker were very kind of understandably a little bit kind of unsure about all this, and they didn't really want to flag up the fact that this had happened because it's sort of ambushed marketing in a way, isn't it? Um, so Alan <laughs> introduced him as it was something along the lines of you know a fellow Londoner you all love him he's a man who needs no introduction and then he didn't give him one he just <laughs> Jimmy just walked out um, but yeah so that would be I think that would answer the last part um, that that was an extraordinary thing actually Judd Trump yeah he was sponsored by Burger King because his former manager uh, I think well he was involved in the franchise system Burger King in some way in his business so he got that sponsor it it, it looks a little bit out of place I think because by this point Judd was sort of very much presenting himself on social media as liking the finer things in life and nothing against Burger King but he ain't the Ritz you know Um, but I'm sure he got a lot of money for it so good luck to him Um, and uh, the most lucrative shirt waistcoat sponsor uh I wouldn't know exactly. I mean, I'm sure in, back in the day, Steve Davis got absolute fortunes. Um, but having said that, I'm not sure they wore actually uh, sponsors, sponsors in the 80s. Um, I'm sure a lot of the Chinese sponsors uh, are for good money. Um, I imagine Ronnie O'Sullivan doesn't wear <laughs> logos that he's not getting well paid for. Of course, Paddy Power, uh, again about 20 years ago, they, they um, sponsored the 110 Sport Team. And they would wear extraordinarily colourful waistcoats green and, and, and yellow and all sorts and the, the, the final between Mark Williams and Ken Doherty in 2003 they were wearing Paddy Power waistcoats then um, so yeah it, it's uh, <laughs> it, it, it's been uh, it's been a sort of checkered history uh, literally actually a, a couple of players wore checkered uh, waistcoats uh, Mark Johnston Allen you remember him about 30 years ago at the Crucible an extraordinary thing anyway uh, thank you to everyone else who's written in. Tommy O'Prey, I received your email about Snooker Bingo. You made some great suggestions. 
um, just acknowledging that and we'll look to do that in the future and uh, apologies to other uh, correspondents who haven't oh Dave Tyndall we must do of course sorry Dave I, I should have done you first <laughs> yeah uh, I will, I will uh, Dave Tyndall of course be on the podcast and uh, yeah it should have been should have been elevated up the bill higher than this but anyway I'll do now he said um what did he say? He said, while driving to the local tip the other morning, after forgetting to put my green rubbish bin out the night before, I was listening to one of the Snooker Scene podcast bingo episodes. As I caught a glimpse of my increasingly greying hair in the mirror and listened to Phil Yates reminisce about Robbie Falvari, I thought, how has it come to this? But actually, no, this wasn't a new low. It was a niche-based high. I quite enjoy being a little out of step with mainstream sometimes. And this was just the sort of cult-based morning I've always enjoyed. I assume that's not a typo. Uh, he said, I mean, how many other people that day could claim to be listening to snooker royalty, Phil, while hurling cardboard into a skip? I know just Phil's the snooker royalty there, but anyway, we'll, we'll move on. Also, while driving home, I had some thoughts about the Dave Hendon snooker classic, which one listener suggested. Now, this was, uh, yes, I, my utopian torment. Now, our dear friend Deco on Twitter pointed out that actually the, the, the torment I outlined essentially was the World Open 2010, where they did have amateur qualifying. Um, but anyway, uh, Dave continues... Given you wanted a global feel, I thought it could be worth bringing a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory element into it. So, announce a few months earlier that eight copies of Snooker Scene magazine will have a golden ticket in them. A brilliant marketing trick to boost worldwide sales. And the winners, hopefully decent amateur players, win a trip to the Crucible the week after the World Championship. There they will be met at the gates by tournament host Dave Hendon, looking welcoming and yet vaguely sinister in his cape, top hat and cane. It could work out that the eight winners include a chubby German lad and a couple of brats from the UK and America. But even if we don't get that level of authenticity, the chocolate factory idea is surely worth considering. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> the, 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 the lot to unpack here, not, not least the, the cape, top hat and cane I'm, I'm going to have to wear in, in a Willy Wonka style. Um, well, it's, yes, it's an interesting idea. The problem, of course, is if they're not good amateurs uh, and just time wasters, then, <laughs> then you know, the, the whole thing's a farce. And, and we wouldn't want that, would we? But um, I, I, I take your, your idea on board, Dave, and thank you very much. Uh, and I must also... I'd, uh, this is the final, final email now, because he's put a lot of effort into this. So James Wan writes, Ever since Mark Selby won World Championship number four, I've been hearing and seeing the same debate. Who's, he, who's greater, John Higgins or Mark Selby? I feel that Higgins is a bigger legend in the game, so I've always sided with him. However, today I saw an infographic that has changed my view. See below. Could the gesture really be superior to the wizard? Some key stats seem to suggest so. What are your thoughts? Well, the stats... OK, obviously people can't see this, but we've got things like season in the top 16, the head-to-head between them, head-to-head in finals, days at world number one, consecutive days at world number one, you know, all the titles they've won... And then all sorts of percentage, match wins, frame wins, 70 breaks, 100 breaks, all this stuff. And Selby comes out on top in some of them, John Higgins in some of them. I think, objectively, if, if I was going to write out the list of the greatest players ever, Higgins would be ahead of Selby, but not by much, certainly. And when they play each other, it's usually you know very hard to predict. I mean, there was that, that match where John, <laughs> last year at the Players' Championship, obviously destroyed him um, but you know Selby has beaten him heavily at times I suppose and the caveat here is that I started this podcast with a countdown but there is a bit of a mania and it's a, quite a male thing I think to rank everything um, they, the Guardian do this thing every week they rank like 
the best films of Robert De Niro or the best songs of Annie Lennox or something. And it's quite reductive, actually, because who's to say what's better than something else, really? Uh, and what is it, why does it matter? Why can't you just enjoy it all? But you've asked the question. Um, I think I would still have Higgins just above him. But in some areas, Mark Selby... I mean, Mark Selby, weirdly for a full-time champion, is still a bit underrated by people and, and quite lazily dismissed in, in certain ways as this type of player or that type of player. He's just a great snooker player. Simple as that. Uh, as is John Higgins still. I think Higgins, you know, he's still very much going strong at the top level now I know obviously he had a few disappointments in finals last season but he's still he's a player no one wants to draw I don't think and that includes other top players you don't, you don't think oh great I've got John Higgins <laughs> and you don't think oh great I've got Mark Selby either um, anyway uh, yeah but let, people should let us know let us know what you think and you uh, you can email us snookerscenepodcast at mail.com at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com Proud members of the Sports Social Network, all of that. Check out the little podcast, etc., etc. <laughs> That's the uh, official uh, promotion done. Now, this week, I'll be at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, this is another bit of promotion where my play, Banana Crabtree Simon, uh, is uh, being performed for the next two weeks. So if you are in the area, do come and check it out. Uh, edfringe.com. That's edfringe.com has all the details. We've got two snooker players coming this week. Oh, yes, two snooker players. Uh, have said they're going to come and uh, they're good, good as their word unlike people who said they were going to come and are not coming <laughs> but uh, I'm not, I, I won't drag you into my private hell over that um, and I'm also uh, at the end of the week uh, it looks like I'm taking part in a, in a multimedia extravaganza uh, which more will be revealed later about that um, because it may not happen that's it then. Uh, we'll be back next week to look ahead to the European Masters, but uh, keep your thoughts coming in. For now, though, as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.